verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, and I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me, Ephraim, the son of Zophar, and he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns. He's at the end of his feet. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burial place. Now Ephraim was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham, In the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went into the end of the city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephraim, The hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current, to, current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, and his Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your words to us we know just any time we read your word, you're going to have to show up. You're going to have to help us. You're going to have to guide us. You're going to have to make it make sense in our minds and our hearts for it to be anything else, God. But this is the word that you do. So would you be with us this morning? Would you help us this morning as we read through your word and as we try to just glean from it what you have for us? Would you help us in that process, God? We know that you will. Thank you for that work. It's in Jesus' name. Um, in case you did not know, the good dinosaur is one of the saddest movies of all time. <clears throat> what happens is, spoiler alert, uh, Arlo, the good dinosaur, the, the title, loses his dad in a flood when his dad falls in the water after saving his son. Uh, it's one of the saddest moments in Disney history. Uh, since Scar killed Mufasa, like it's that, it's that bad. But one little girl in particular took the scene really hard. Yeah. Oh, look, he's waking up. Get up, guys. 
Is that not the saddest thing you've ever seen in your life? My gosh, the little tears that fell. Um, but here's why we watch that. Uh, faith will always have death involved. Because life will always have death involved. Um, it's a sad truth of life, one that cannot be evaded. So our question becomes, with our faith in mind, how do we handle the death of those around us? How do we deal with death when it comes to faith? Well, from God's word, in chapter 23, we see two ways to respond to death in faith. The first is we mourn, and the second is we rise up. Death is an absolute certainty, and since it is, it comes in such a and it comes in such a painful way. We mourn, we cry, we feel sadness, but we also do not stay there. We rise up, we keep going, we continue in the purpose that God has given to us by faith. <clears throat> so let's just take a look at the first one. In verse one. Sarah lived 127 years. So just to put this into proper perspective, God shows up to a man in the beginning of chapter 12. This man worshipped a moon god to tell him, he says, uh, leave your homeland, your family, everything you've known. I mean, he's 75 years old, so he's lived there for 75 years. And he tells Abraham to go to a land that God is going to give to him. So Abraham says, well, where am I going? God says, I'll tell you later. Abraham says, well, when do I get the land? God says, I'll tell you later. Uh, and God promises him an offspring that will be the foundation of blessing for not only him and his family, but for all of the people of every tribe, every tongue, every tribe and nation. And so Abraham says, sweet, well, when do I get my boy? When do I get my offspring? And God says, I'll tell you later. So Abraham goes and does some of these things well and others not so well. And there's strangers in this land that God has not given to them yet. And they do not have the boy of which God has promised them. And they do so for nearly 30 years. And so God finally gives them the offspring that was promised. 30 years. And they give baby Isaac, and it was an amazing time. Until God shows up to Abraham to, off, to say, hey, look, I need you to offer up your son as an offering to the Lord. So Abraham, in faith, he goes and he does this because he knows that even if it happens, God is powerful enough to raise him from the dead. But God steps in and makes sure it doesn't happen, and he offers up a substitute for the sacrifice in Isaac's place, which points us to Jesus being the sacrificial lamb of God who took our place in the point of wrath. And now, after Sarah has lived 127 years, so baby Isaac is 37. It's not a baby anymore. Abraham is 137 years old. It's been 62 years since God first called and promised him what he did in Genesis 12. 62 years. So just so we can see, too, uh, Sarah dies and sees none of the promised land. Sarah dies and sees no offspring other than her son. She sees no blessing. Kind of. In fact, Abraham has only made friends and blessed one man from what we can see in Scripture. 
He was Abimelech and his people. So for, for our Americanized Western standards, this is not a life of success. But it is a life of faith. In 1912, medical missionary Dr. William Leslie, he went to live and minister to tribal people in a remote corner of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. After 17 years, he returned to the U.S. a discouraged man. Why? Well, two years after stepping foot into that country, he developed a serious illness. And then in 1905, William and his wife Clara overcame a hurricane that struck the night before one of their children was born. And they had more mundane obstacles like charging buffalo, coming at them, and armies of ants um, that were the size of your hand. <clears throat> but seven years into it, they cleared enough of the leopard-infested jungle along the Kualu River at Vanga for a new mission station perched on a small plateau. And some of the villages surrounding them were still practicing cannibalism at the time. This is crazy. They spent 17 years there on the side of that river, but their service ended on the rocky note. Dr. Leslie had a relational falling out with some of the tribal leaders and was asked not to come back. So he felt that he was he felt like he was there for 17 years and never made a single impact. He returned and died nine years after his return. In 2010, 100 years after Dr. Leslie showed up and 80 some odd years after his death, a team found a network of, re of reproducing churches hidden like glittering diamonds in the dense jungle along the Kwanu River from Vanga, where Dr. Leslie was stationed for those 17 years. When we got in there, we, this is uh, one of the reports. When we got in there, we found a network of reproducing churches throughout the jungle. Each village had its own gospel choir, although they wouldn't call it that. Because they wrote their own, own songs and, would have, would have, and they would have sing-offs from village to village. They found a church in each of the eight villages they visited, scattered across 34 miles. Ramsey and his team even found a 1,000-seat stone cathedral in one of the villages. He learned that this church got so crowded in the 1980s, with many walking miles to attend, that a church planting movement began in the surrounding villages. Each of these churches had a similar story about a man named Wesley being the reason they started. They didn't know his last name. They didn't know anything about him. Dr. Leslie died a discouraging man because he never got to see the promise fulfilled. And so does Sarah. But that never means that God will not fulfill his promises to them. They didn't get to see it, but it still happened. And that's what this is faith. So uh, if you go back to verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, which is the, in the land where they have been living, the land where God first reminded Abraham of the promise. This is the place where Abraham first worshipped his new God in the land of Canaan, which is in the promised land, where he will give it to him one day. So it's not there, it's not theirs yet, but they're at least there. They're in that vicinity. Uh, and Abraham, it keeps going, and Abraham. This is the husband of Sarah who lived with and loved this woman for probably close to 90 years. Uh, this was his best friend. This was his wife. This was the woman who followed him into the wilderness where people went to die. And she followed him into Egypt, into Abimelech's kingdom, where both times Abraham offered up Sarah as his sister instead of his wife. And Abraham was there when Sarah lied to God's face. And you know he had to stand there in disbelief like, you don't know who that is. You know, it's the, it's the classic love story. <coughs> but his best friend dies. And what does he do? Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah 
and to weep for her. Literally translated, the words mourn and weep could mean all of a few things at once, um, such as tearing your clothes, shaving your head, putting dust on yourself, and literally wailing, crying out as loud as you can. So this is a deep, deep grief and sorrow. This is mourning. Uh, a man named Job, he did the exact same thing, just, this is uh, Job 1. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, and these are all the same words from one And Job arose, and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground. Now this sounds kind of weird for us, um, but this is just a custom for the day. So it was a way of saying, as my clothes are ripped, so is my heart. As my, as my body is covered in the darkness of this dust, so is my heart. And notice there's a, so our, our morning won't look like that necessarily, but notice there is a time for mourning. It's not pushed to the wayside because it's emotional. Um, when we feel pain of this magnitude, it's God-honoring to me. It is biblical to wail in our pain. Yes, like Christian funerals, they do have joy in them, but it's biblical to to weep when we feel pain because no matter what we lost a friend. Abraham goes into the tent where they lay her down in her last breath and he's at her side and tears are probably dropping from his face onto the floor and he cannot help but do something to show his grief and his pain. And I, one thing that is just insane about the notion of what Abraham is doing here is what we see in the rest of Job 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Worship. This is what Abraham's doing. He feels this immense amount of pain, and the only thing that makes any sense of, the, of, of all the pain that he feels is just to take it to God. It's like, I feel really sad right now. What am I supposed to do? And what, everything he does, from ripping his clothes, to pouring the dust on himself, to wailing, to to crying, to weeping, to worship. And in Joel 2, the author just finished explaining all of the horrible things that were happening and the people's response to it. Um, and this is what God says in Joel 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When horrible things happen to you and I, and they have and they will and they're going to happen, nine times out of ten it's brought on by our own, 
our own stuff, just to be a product of sin, what that does, our response should be to mourn, to worship. How do we do that? We bring our broken hearts to the Father, who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that's it. There's no need for tearing our clothes to show that our heart is broken or covering ourselves in dust. We merely return to the Lord. This is humble, this is repentant, this is mourning over sin, uh, but rejoicing in the forgiveness of sin, the righteousness we have in Christ. But notice, nothing about any of these passages, nothing about what Abraham is doing, uh, says, uh, okay, you're going to know why this happened. None of these passages say anything about um, anything other than what the response is. We bring it to the Father. Death, sin, horrible things go horribly wrong, and all of it is inevitable. And we'll come to those closest to us, we'll come to us, the ones we love the most, and when it does, we weep. We mourn. We wail in sorrow over what has happened. We worship the God of the universe. But that's not. We also rise in because worship never looks like morning alone. Our weeping and morning may turn for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And in the morning, we rise. Take a look. <clears throat> Take a look at verse 3. And, so this is just after an appropriate time of mourning that Abraham just had. And Abraham rose up from before his dead. So, yes, we mourn. But just as there is a time to mourn, there is a time to rise. We do not know how long he stayed in the tent with Sarah, uh, but we do know that he rose up. And he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham says to the men of the land, and just like, notice the humility, because I'm a sojourner. I'm at a huge disadvantage to you and to your people because I have no land to call my own. I don't even have a place where I can properly bury my dead. Do you have any place among you? See that? You have any place among you. This is what a missionary does. Like just go smack to the dad, smack dad to the middle of the land that God has called to and gets that spot. But he says, Can I have this place among you that I can have for a burial? I may bury my head out of my sight. So, first, uh, we must note just the honor that God emphasizes with the human body. So, there's something about honoring what God has created in his image by being buried in a place where people can remember you. In their mourning, and there's something about honoring, there's something honoring about being buried out of sight. But death is inevitable, but it is a horrible inevitability. So it should not be looked upon. But second, we notice that this is part of Abraham's provision for his family. So not only will this be a tomb for his whole family to be buried, um, which is honoring to his family, but it's a place of remembrance and closure, which is honoring. Uh, so in verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you this tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Which is honestly just very kind of them. Uh, they've seen God take care of this tent-dwelling nation um, for 30-some-odd years now, so they know that Abraham has a divine helper. Like, people would go to the wilderness to die, so the fact that they have been living out there is crazy. So they call him a prince of God. Um, and they tell him to just take any of the tombs that they want. But this isn't, this isn't enough for Abraham, and we'll see why here in just a minute. But look at verse 7. Abraham rose and bowed. So just another example of, of humility. He's treating the people of the nations, everybody around him, with kindness and grace, even though he's got this 
through that, that divine intervention and God behind him. Uh, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burial place. So we see that Abraham was after a specific piece of land. Like he knew which one he was going for. He knew who owned it. He knew everything about it. He wants the cave at Machpelah. It's just being some two caves. Um, but he doesn't want it as a gift. They're trying to give it to him. He doesn't want it as a gift. He wants to pay for it. And we'll see why here in a minute. Um, look at the verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of, my, of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So again, it's just very kind of him. They, they, can most, they can most likely see that his clothes are torn, and since that was custom of the day, they know he's in mourning, they know something terrible happened. Um, they want to just give it to him. But Abraham's still not having it. In verse 12, it's just a crazy back and forth. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, again, just being humble. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So this sounds really odd, uh, just the, the whole back and forth, but this was just part of the custom of the day. It was just haggling, it was back and forth. Um, so they would call out a price and they would haggle it from there, but the men of the nation, of, of this nation, were like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, we see that you're sad, we see that you're a widower. Um, so they just want to give it to him. So reluctantly, Ephron answers him and he says, listen, and it's, it's worth this much, uh, but I don't want to haggle with you, just, just bury your dead. Um, so in verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So he heard what he needed to hear, the price. That's what Abraham was looking for the whole time. Why did he need to hear the price? Why did he weigh the money out in front of everyone um, by the scales of the merchants, of their merchants, in order to secure this land as his own? Because what was also true of this culture is that people would gift things over to other people, and then a few generations down the road, there's no, there's no proof of that. There's proof of purchase, but there's no proof of any friendship. Um, so they would hold it over to these other people as blackmail. So we don't know if the men were actually going to, to be that vicious. We don't know what was going to happen. But it still makes sense to secure it. So Abraham, make sure this cannot happen. Abraham, make sure that his place is secured and legally his and his family's forever. Uh, in verse 17. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over, that's uh, just a legal term, to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went into the gates of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. And so Abraham, so Sarah dies. Abraham weeps and mourns for her. But then he rises up and he goes about his life as, no, as normal. He provides for his family and he secures for the very first time in history, as we see it, a piece of land for the people of God. 
What's he doing exactly? Exactly what God called him to do in, in Genesis 12 and 13. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you one day, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 13, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God calls Abraham to be in this exact place so that all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because the rest of Genesis 13 says this. Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Do you see? This is the land that God had promised. God says, I will give you this land that you uh, make that you will bless the nations and the families of the earth. And Abraham finally has that piece of land. He rises up from his morning to stand firm in the purpose and the calling that God has for him. He doesn't run. He doesn't give up. He doesn't stop. He knows that his life and his calling is larger than himself because God is using him. And so he rises up and stands in the place that God has him. Death has come. Death is here and death will come. And what's our response biblically? We mourn. We weep. We also rise up. Why? Because God's plan and promise are still going to happen. We still must be a blessing to the nations so that they will be blessed as well and know that God is their blessing too. And one of the most amazing things about this chapter is that the very first piece of land that God gives to his people as part of the covenant of blessing, what we've been talking about for 15 weeks, 14 weeks now, it comes through the hardest trial that Abraham has had to face. It comes through death. It comes through the toughest challenge of his life. The loss of life of his very best friend. The first steps onto the land of promise come through the death of Sarah. But listen to Colossians 1. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, just like Abraham and Sarah, sojourners, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The only way into the promised land is through death. For God's people, the only, the only means by which they are able to purchase any land is through the death of Sarah. And for you and I, the only means by which you and I will ever see the promised land of heaven is if we have been reconciled to God Jesus' death. Because the truth is, we are merely sojourners in a land that is not our own. And 99 of us, 99, 99% of us don't even own our actual, our actual homes like the bank really does. Um, so one aspect of our lives that makes us extremely uh, hostile and alienated from God is our sin. So we live in a world just plagued by sin. Our sins of pride and selfishness keep us from loving our brother and sister as ourselves. Our sins of impatience and anger keep us from reconciling with our brother or sister. In any moment we do not regard Christ and honor Christ in everything that we do, we step into not obeying the word of God. 
and we step into sin. There's not a single person on the earth who can boast of sinlessness. And since God is a holy and just God, there is only one response to the problem of sin, that's justice and wrath. If you think about it, when we hear of another school shooting, or another mass murder, or another sexual abuse scandal, or another beheading, there has to be a God who can give justice to those people. Even if we could uh, give right and true justice to even one of them, there are millions more, and every day there are even more. God has to deal with the problem of sin across the globe, starting with you and I, and he does so through the death of Jesus. Amen. By the death of Jesus, God is expelling all of the wrath and justice of all of the acts of sin, past, present, and future. And when that cup of wrath was emptied out onto Jesus, that satisfied the wrath of God. And that means that there is none left for those who believe in and are covered by the blood of that death. And the beginning of that comes by the death of Jesus Christ. The death was the one to secure it. The death was the one to bring us in. Because of our sin, we deserve nothing less than that wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, steps in to provide a way for his family, his people. The death of Sarah was no coincidental happenstance in the grand scheme of God's plan. It was exactly what God's people needed. The death of Jesus is no coincidental happenstance, but exactly what you and I need. So when death comes to those around us, to those we love, can be reminded of Genesis 23 and on That God works in death. That God's plan is not thwarted or messed up or going to be held back because of death, but He will use the horrible inevitability of death to bring people to Himself. Death is the hardest part of life. But we can be encouraged by God's word in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And by the death of Jesus, As Sarah was buried, Jesus was too. But as Sarah's body remains in the Middle East in a cave, Jesus was resurrected to defeat death, that you and I might do the same in Jesus forever and live with him for eternity. So why do we mourn? Why do we mourn? Why do we rise up? Why do we do any of this? Uh, this is a promise from the book of Isaiah, where the angel of the Lord is speaking, which is uh, Jesus. The Lord will bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to comfort all who mourn, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have 
everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord is blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in me, uh, in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in, in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings of the glory, of, and all the kings of your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be turned forsaken and, the, and your land shall no more be named desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you. Do you see it all? You go from complete and utter wretched mess to that. All of this because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of one. So, uh, we're going to glorify this God. We're going to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ with a physical representation of that gospel uh, with the Lord's Supper. So as we eat of the bread and drink of the juice, we're remembering the death of this Jesus on our behalf. And so if this is you, if you have seen the depths of your sin and darkness of your heart in your life without Jesus, and the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is what beckons you to call out to him, in need and hope, and you're welcome to the table as part of the family of believers by faith. However, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, or if you are unrepentant in your sin, I ask that you remain in your seat on the basis of 1 Corinthians. It says you eat and drink and remember. But if this is you, turn to them. This death has happened on your behalf too, that you may have life. And the reality is, we're all 30 to 45 minutes closer to our death than when we walked in this morning. Let Jesus' death be your death. And let Jesus' life be your life. Turn from your sin to belief in Jesus as your Savior today. Death still will be sad, but it does not have to be scared. For all of us, uh, here is our prayer. Father, I confess that I need the body and the blood of Christ to live. Thank you for reminding me of the true hope of life in Jesus' death. Help my morning, bring me to Jesus yet again. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, take your time to pray, take your time to, uh, to think about God's word in this way, and then in a minute, just go and grab the elements and bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. Death is always going to be the most difficult thing we will have to deal with. But, uh,
reminder of God's grace to all of us who mourn and have words go straight from the mouth of Jesus and say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. One day, you and I are in the promised land of heaven. We'll be in eternal comfort, a place where there is no death, where there are no tears, where there is no sadness. Why is that true? How is it possible that that would be true? Because on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this ever again. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for the story of Genesis 23. We might just read it sometimes. It doesn't make any sense. You show up. Remind us that yes, death is horrible. We should weep and mourn and worship you in our mind. We should bring it to you. But yet, in that, God, in the death of, of what, what we see, it's just you fulfilling your promises in ways that we can't see. So, we thank you for the, the example of faith. But we also say, would you help us? You give us your grace and your mercy to give us that sort of faith, God. And the rest of our lives is going to be really difficult when we know that, God. Would you just remind us of your presence? Would you remind us of your calling, your promise, of this or one day? Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life, the death, the burial.